beautiful people, welcome to this week's show, and if you are just joining us, this is the Montpelier Happy Hour, where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and before we dive into everything, there is a heat wave out there. We hope you are all staying cool. We hope Doug up in the thunderstorms are st- is staying dry, and uh, make sure you check on any vulnerable friends, neighbors, relatives during this heat wave. Anything you want to add to that regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser? I just want to say for anyone who's watching us here on Community Access that the first moment I saw Olga when she joined the Zoom room, I said, oh, you have air conditioning where you are, don't you? (laughs) So apologies for my sort of disheveled, sweaty self, everyone. Um, There's no air conditioning here at the Kornheiser residence. Can I add, Olga, that your listeners should also look into their pets' safety as well? Yes, yes. Make sure nobody's being left in a hot house or a hot car. Thank you, Doug Hoffer, State Auditor for the State of Vermont. So glad you can be joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So we're going to talk about a number of reports and reviews and audits that the State Auditor's office has has been doing over the past year. And we're going to start with dam reports. But before we do, Doug, quickly remind people, what's the purpose of of the reviews and the audits that you perform um, on state services? Well, that's a good question, and thank you. I think a lot of people probably don't know what the auditor's office does. They assume we do financial auditing, and we don't, although that is done through a contract through my office. Uh, There are two major audits done every year of the state. One is of the state's financial statements, and the other is the so-called compliance or single audit, which tracks compliance with federal regulations for all the federal money we get. They're both very big jobs, and they're important. They're not much fun. So that's why I'm glad we don't do them. We pay other people to do those. So that leaves us free to do performance auditing, which allows us to examine the state's agencies and departments and how well they implement programs created by the legislature and funded by taxpayers. Thank you. And the first one we're going to talk about is audit you, your office performed on the Department of Environmental Conservation's dam safety program. Now, this these findings were done in February of last year. We're talking about them now because in light of the summer flooding, you know, we had some some dam emergencies that really I think brought this program to people's awareness perhaps more than they had in the past. And before we we talk about your findings, according to your report, Vermont has about a thousand known dams under this inspection program. Most of them are around the age of 77. The state estimates that there may be as many as a thousand more that aren't recorded and aren't being inspected. In 2019, the American Society of Civil Engineers gave Vermont a C grade rating because of its number of deteriorating dams. And the auditor's um, office gave a deep dive into 10 different dams. What I want to remind people of, we're going to be talking about ratings and conditions uh, when we talk about the dams. One thing the state looks at is if this dam lets go, how much potential damage and loss of life and injury could it cause? So two dams that hold back the same amount of water but say one would release into a wetland and one would release into downtown 
Montpelier, those are two very different type of hazard ratings. Mm -hmm. You're doing great over, just keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I have to say my eyes went like this when I was reading your report, Doug, because I reported on some of these dams that you did a review on. Like when I started at the Commons, say, 13 years ago, and to know that they haven't been revisited, <laughs> I was like, hmm, it, it surprised me. Discouraging. Yeah. So take it from there, Doug. What, what surprised you when, you when your office did this audit? Well, I came in with no prior knowledge of dams in general. Uh, there are people who are kayakers and canoers and hikers, and they're more familiar with and come in contact with these bodies of water, on, some on a regular basis. And they know the area and what might be at risk downstream and so forth. I'm not one of those. So it was all new to me. And I was also unaware of the vast majority of these dams are privately owned, Mm -hmm. which creates a challenge for the state. Because in my experience, both in this job and prior, the Agency of Natural Resources typically does not look for opportunities to hassle people. Now, you know, if you are emitting noxious, toxic waste, then the state's more likely to come to your door and say, please stop. And if you don't, we're going to arrest you. But for everything else, they like to negotiate. They like to be a, a happy agency. And as a result, and furthermore, a number of the owners of these dams and the water behind them may not have deep pockets. So the state might say to them when they do actually inspect the dams, look, here's some things you need to do soon. And if they go back a year or two later and they haven't been done, They don't usually use their power, their authority to make them do it or to have the work done and build them because they can do those types of things, as you would imagine, as a regulatory problem, but they don't. Uh, So that's one of the the problems, I think. We didn't highlight that. That's like a policy choice for this and prior administrations. They don't want to be the bad guys. On the other hand, if it's a high hazard dam Mm -hmm. and there there are demonstrable problems, then I I can't think of a good reason not to make the work happen, either directly through the state or through contractors paid for by the owner. So Thank you for that clarification, Doug, because that was one question I had is what kind of authority does the department have to tell people you have to get this work done, whether it's state-owned dam, a local municipality-owned dam, or a um, privately-owned dam? They have quite a bit of authority. Uh, there is an oddity. I must say, I, I only laughed for a minute because I cried thereafter. Some of the dams owned by the state are, I suppose, technically managed by another division within the Agency of Natural Resources, which is literally down the hall <laughs> from the Department of Environmental Conservation, literally down the hall. And in some cases, that other agency had not been informed of the findings of an inspection. Oh. Down the hall. Did anyone give you a reason why that had, hadn't happened? Um, not a good one, no. Okay. <laughs> so the, the bottom line is, for reasons that are unclear to me, because I, you know, learning a little, just a little bit about this, I wasn't on the audit team. I'm just the guy that, you know, signs the document after reviewing it 17 times. I'm shocked that the legislature, for its part, because the committees of jurisdiction, no doubt, routinely have people in to talk about this at least once or twice a year, and successive administrations are aware of the shortage of resources. You know, all agencies and departments say they don't have enough resources. In some cases, it's true. 
They have a heavy workload and they just don't have enough bodies or time. Mm -hmm. This is one of them. And you know, Doug, I'll tell you, I'm, I've certainly never been on a committee, even close to a committee of jurisdiction related to dams. And honestly, the only time I've ever heard about dams in, be, like, you know, until Brattleboro was in danger of flooding because of dams up the river, was I like regularly hear from three people who live in Callis. I don't live anywhere near Callis, but who have like specific concerns about their particular dam and insurance policy, actually, mostly related to it. Well, maybe you've heard from them since you issued your report. But it's interesting to me that there isn't more conversation around. I've heard about like, you know, um, some of I know that the dam in Townsend, people are concerned that they don't pay enough taxes. But yeah, like dam safety, not something that anyone really talks about. So well, Emily, in my just, experience here, oh, I'm sorry. sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, just for context, Emily, one of the initial dams that I reported on years ago, and I couldn't find my reporting, otherwise I'd, I'd link to it, but it's the Chestnut Hill Reservoir Dam in, right in the Brown. Chestnut Hill yeah. neighborhood oh, yeah. of Rattleboro, mm -hmm. and it's locally owned by the municipality, and I think it's been kind of uh, on the list for needing repairs for, what, 18 years? I yes. I think your report said. Wow. And <laughs> that's a pretty dense neighborhood. I don't, I am not saying that like that dam is in danger of like giving way tomorrow. I am not saying that at all, but it is a dense neighborhood that it would release into if there was a problem. Right. Under the general heading of the squeaky wheel, I recall during my time in Vermont hearing over the years on many occasions, honest and passionate debates about whether old dams should be removed to allow yes. free flow of water, mm -hmm. fish, and all kinds of stuff. And it's a great conversation. I, I don't know enough about it, but it's interesting that during those conversations, you generally don't hear about the safety issue. Yes, I've heard about that a lot. I've also heard a lot of conversations about who should own the Connecticut River dams, you know, for that yeah. right? That's also a totally separate conversation, not about safety. And so, yeah, Really, yes, I'm glad that we're I'm talking. I'm glad you today. mentioned that. I was going to get to it later if I didn't forget because, you know, I'm old. But some dams in Vermont, as you well know, are owned by utilities. The bigger ones that are used to produce hydroelectric power are typically regulated by FERC. Yes. However, the Public Utility Commission, for its part, is responsible for the other typically smaller dams that are owned by utilities. We found in the course of this work, even though they weren't the auditee, but we happened to look at them because they had some dam authority, that their definitions of hazard levels and other stuff were not the same as DEC. Hmm. And furthermore, the frequency of inspections was not the same. So we communicated with them, and to their credit, they responded promptly and said, thanks for the heads up. We will go to rulemaking and make some changes. And they did. And now the definitional stuff is cured, but the frequency issue has not been cured. Mm. And mm. That's, that's something that DEC is working on. And I'm sad to say that for reasons unclear to me, I, I know obviously the flooding is an issue for A&R generally and puts everybody behind the eight ball, but uh, they're now well into year two of not even starting the rulemaking process on changing a number of the things we identified as problematic. So, and just as an aside, Emily, you'll appreciate this, I think. 
when we issue these reports, whether they're full-blown Genghis audits or memos or investigative reports, we always distribute them to the committees of jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And generally, we have a newsletter to all of the members of the legislature, as well as all the administration folks. I've instructed staff. Gosh, I never get to say that. I've instructed. It sounds so powerful. It does. Yes. Um, I've told all, staff. All that five of them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, now. There's 11 auditors these days. So, Sorry. Uh, we often encounter reasons to comment on existing rules or the need for changes in rules or the legislature's requirement that rules be changed and haven't mm -hmm. been yet. Henceforth, every time we do one of these jobs that includes that kind of issue, we're going to direct it to ICAR and LCAR directly. Oh, because, interesting. Because a as idea. a rule, they don't go out of their way. I mean, they see what's what's scheduled, but they don't say, oh, I remember the auditor did a job on this and called let's me take a Let's take a brief break and make sure that everyone knows what ICAR and LCAR is. <laughs> Well, one is the administrative side of the rulemaking process. It starts with that. Let's even back up. So rules. Okay. So back rules with statutes. I'll do this one. So listeners who are regular listeners will remember that we've talked about changing the constitution, right? Mm -hmm. And that how we have the, the state constitution and underneath the state constitution, adding more definition to what's in the constitution, we have the laws and then adding more definition and specificity to the laws are the rules. And the rules are generally promulgated, that means sort of like created, by the administration as a essentially a way of sort of devising their response to the laws, how they're gonna sort of like carry out the definitions and the laws. But those rules have to be approved by the legislature to make sure that they're in keeping with legislative intent. And so LCAR does that. Thank you. Well, LCAR mm -hmm. seems to be, I shouldn't say this out loud, but I will, seems to be kind of a rubber stamp, but they will respond and I think do to, I'll call them special interests, but interested parties, it could be neighbors, who could be an industry, a trade group, it could be a nonprofit, could be VPR, could be anybody who comes in with an opinion and a view, hopefully with some facts to present. That's not always the case. I think they would benefit the committees, I should say, from getting more information. And that's what we do. We collect, analyze, and report information. So I'm looking forward to maybe adding a little value to that process if we get lucky. Because it's so exciting. ICAR and LCAR, come on, you know? <laughs> so I think they're Quickly, going back to the the report you, your office did on the dams. So the takeaways were that a lot of the dams, while they may be inspected, they weren't having the, the repairs made that were recommended, and that perhaps the department was not using some of the authority it could use to move some of these repairs along. Any other um, findings and or, you know, this report was done last year. Has DEC responded in any way? Anything changed? Yeah, the good news is, well, let me back up a little bit. You alluded to this, but we didn't talk about it in depth and we don't need to, but they were way behind on their inspection schedule. Way behind. Hmm. Primarily because of resources. I don't think they were as well organized internally in terms of their systems and and information processing and collection and, and reporting, but they certainly didn't have enough bodies. They now have some additional resources. During this audit, in fact, they went through the administration to the legislature and asked for a little more in the way of resources, and, and the legislature responded, thankfully. 
Uh, so they're picking up the slack, but they have a lot of ground to cover, for sure. I mean, the people we dealt with during the audit are smart, capable, committed people. We just need more of them. So, and by the way, there are different types of inspections. There are very comprehensive inspections that require the kind of, you know, consulting engineers that even the state hires. It's not just private sector people. That's one part. But the other is that periodic, less intensive inspections are kind of like drive-by, but at least they're trained people going to look at certain aspects of the structure and its environs. And they weren't really doing any of that on a regular basis. It's really unfortunate. But I, I think they're now committed to doing better. And I, from what I've seen, I think we can trust them. I certainly hope so. And did I read somewhere that the legislature approved two more positions for dam inspectors? Yeah, I'm not sure how if they're full-time permanent or full-time seasonal or for a specific period of time. I'm not sure. But yes, there is a little more resources. Yeah, it's good. Doug, can I ask you, you know, you mentioned that there's sort of a tradition of not engaging in any enforcement when recommended fixes aren't fixed. What would enforcement look like? Well, as I say, they do have the authority to to have the work done and build them. Now, having said that, if you're a dam owner and you don't have the money, the state would struggle to get the money from you, but at least the work would get done. Oh, so it's basically like the state contracts for the work and then bills back the... Okay. It's one of their options, but really you know, having, having never been in the room with them, I don't know how hard they negotiate, honestly. Mm -hmm. But I, I was led to believe that they are reluctant to use those really hardcore uh, administrative powers that they have. Mm -hmm. And it's not just dams. I think it's a lot of A&R. That's just their default setting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Did you come across any fees or other penalties that the department could charge if, if a repair wasn't made? I think that, no, I think the penalty is, is making them pay to have the work done, gotcha. basically. I was just trying to understand the scope of the authority and, and what they had at. Now, and, and in fairness to the, the existing staff, which has now been enlarged slightly, much of what they do, or a good deal of what they do, is devoted to state-owned dams that are substantial. Mm -hmm. Themselves present some risk, although I think most, not all, but most of those are in somewhat better shape than some of the other ones. But when you when you have to actively manage dams, that takes more time than just inspecting, you know, the, it's probably about 50 or 60 that are considered high hazard or close to it around mm -hmm. the state. Okay. Mm -hmm. they're, they're largely or have been, had been largely focused on the state's own dam, which can be quite time consuming. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we're lucky. Uh, we got through this last thing, but, you know, I hope Emily and her colleagues will invite these guys in and say, you know, how are you doing? You have a little more resources? Is it making the difference? Is it sufficient? You know, where do you stand? Because as I say, they were very cooperative. And I think us. a big question is also like, why are you not enforcing? Yeah. Are you not using your enforcement authority? And is there an authority that would feel more useful to you than the one that you have? Good point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because Doug, you do raise a, a very good point that, yes, the state could contract to get a, a dam repaired, but if the homeowner, if it's a private owned dam, if they can't pay the money, they can't pay the money. 
but that doesn't mean the work shouldn't be done. If it's a matter of public safety, it's not even a question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the highest ratings for hazards include the strong possibility of human life being lost. Mm -hmm. uh, and and even the one below that includes the possibility or likelihood of environmental damage mm -hmm. that cannot be mitigated, where an entire resource will be lost. Yeah. So given that, I, I don't see that it's a choice. That's an obligation that the state has, it seems to me. So, and I'm sure most reasonable people would agree. Yeah. And all the people pretty, I know are reasonable. That's a pretty straightforward one, actually, in the, you know, yeah. face of all kinds of other. We're going to get to another one of those yeah. later. So uh, mm -hmm. can we move on to the Department of Labor, my favorite? Um, it's not actually, your favorite, it's my favorite. I would love to save the Department of Labor for after the break, just so we have a big chunk of time to talk about. So we have just about five minutes before we need to hear from some underwriters I think there were oh, some okay. smaller programs uh, you just wanted to let people know about. Well, one that won't take too long, it's pretty straightforward, is the Agency of Digital Services, which was created just five or six years ago from the rib of what had been called the Department of Information and Innovation, is now an agency. And they drew all of the IT experts throughout state government into this agency. They now work for ADS, not for human services or commerce or whatever. And in theory, that's not a bad idea. It's fine. Although I don't think a lot of effort was put into planning the creation and management of ADS. It happened very, very quickly. Hmm. In any case, we decided to look at project management because they are responsible for seeing big projects through from initiation to completion for all of mm -hmm. state government. And it's got to be a, a project of some size, like over a million bucks. And some of them are much more than that. Some of them are less. And we looked at uh, half a dozen that were all pretty substantial. And we're far enough along for us to review them. And we're not in the early stages. And, you know, it's unfortunate, but only one of the six was the project delivered on time and within budget. And some of them were close. A couple were not even very close at all, like 100% over budget. One of them, they paid the contractor and never got anything for it. But it was confusing time. It was the Secretary of State's office. And they, they thought they had a deadline to spend the money by the end of the year which they did, but then the feds changed the rules and it was, it was a mess. So we spent 2 million bucks and didn't get what we paid for. Oh dear. Uh, and I know they're working on fixing that as best they can, but what I'm, something, I'm curious ahead. about to hear from you about, so the dream, my understanding, the dream of ADS was that rather than being, um, sort of an assumption that having folks with digital expertise nested in various agencies was not as efficient or as effective as having a central digital expertise department that really was expert in mapping processes in advance of bidding out on technology. What I've heard from folks at various agencies who have engaged in processes with ADS. And I'm curious if your audit got into this at all, really, or if this was a conversation you had that didn't get into the audit, that the lack of expertise about the needs of the various departments and their processes really kept the project from moving forward in a way that was helpful. That's a great question. I can get to it from the one great. aspect related that we did look at. Our second objective was the extent to which ADS and the, the business entity, as they're called, the agency or the department, actually knew upfront what they hoped and intended to achieve 
in terms of the business process, whether it's DCF, you know, serving low-income single moms, whether it's a different agency with different responsibilities, did they have a way to measure whether they actually succeeded or not? And the answer is no, in some cases, which is really too bad. Unfortunately, ADS claimed to us that they had no responsibility for that whatsoever, when in fact the statute's very clear that they do. Oh, and your point I thought is they that, had no responsibility for what? For whether the system that they helped find and install, either through contractors or with their own staff, actually achieved the goals of the business entity. They said what? that's for them, not for us. And the statute says otherwise. Hmm. It was really discouraging to hear them say that. We weren't suggesting that it was ADS's responsibility in total. Obviously, the business entity in the first mm -hmm. instance is responsible for defining what success means, but ADS should be right with them as a partner yes. in doing that. And they said, no, we don't read it that way. Hmm. It's too bad. Interesting. Fascinating. Okay. Ah, well. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> no. I think it was a good job. And back to your other point, Emily, we didn't look at the operational relationship between day-to-day -day -day ADS staff and the business entities. We looked only at project management which is a big piece. I mean, there, mm -hmm. there are about 60 projects that are worth over $200 million in the queue mm -hmm. right now. So it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, we need to, um, thank you, Doug. We need to hear from some of our underwriters here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. So hang tight. <laughs> Back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I'm the host, Olga Peters, and I'm speaking with regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser, as well as State Auditor Doug Hoffer. And Emily, what do we need to remind listeners of? As a matter of fact, the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, respectively, and not the station, nor their employers, friends, pets, loved ones, neighbors. We should also remind them that Representative Kornheiser is the chair of the Ways and Means Committee in the House of Representatives. <laughs> should we? Do we need no to do small that? feet. No small feet. No. This is true. And I actually don't have small feet. I have fairly, <laughs> I'm a fairly short woman, but I have quite large feet for my size. So you have good balance. That's good. I, That's do. Good. I do. Quite good balance, yeah. You can stand your ground. I can. Oh. <laughs> Doug, thank you for the conversation on the audit that you your uh, office did into the dam safety program. I want to shift gears and talk about what's happening right now with the Vermont Department of Labor, specifically a memo that you wrote on August 18th. Looking at overpayments that were made to people during COVID, during some of the extended unemployment insurance programs that happened under COVID, extra COVID relief, and how many of these overpayments are nobody's fault. They just happened because it was COVID and COVID was an apple cart blown to a million pieces. However, the Vermont Department of Labor has not necessarily told anyone that, or they've been slow in telling people that 
you do not have to worry about these overpayments. So take it from there, Doug, because it's a far more nuanced yeah, no, it's, but it's also pretty. Can I, wait, can I actually give some context before you explain what went wrong, Doug? Because I think this is a really important. Yeah, I was going to, but go ahead if you're okay. important. Go. So an ongoing tension in all government benefits programs that we've talked about in a few other contexts, but I think is the most acute with the Department of Labor and their continued challenges is the balance between access. Someone is unemployed through no fault of their own, they need money to pay their bills. How many hoops do you make them jump through and how long do you make them wait before they get a check in the mail that they've been promised and that their employer is paid into for, right? Versus the deep systemic concerns around fraud. And even in that sort of bucket of fraud, there's like malevolent fraud, right? Like someone like going out of their way to con the government. And then there's improper payments or improper overpayments that can happen either because someone is messy with their paperwork because they're overwhelmed by life. Happens to me pretty regularly. Or the person working at the Department of Labor does some messy paperwork because they're overwhelmed with their job and maybe their life too, because they're real people. And so we have a challenge there. And so it's always a balance between getting the money out the door to the people who really need it and who have a right to it and making sure it's done perfectly so that things happen. And the Department of Labor and most government bureaucracies over the last 30 years have gone deeper and deeper and deeper towards protection and further and further away from sort of a right to funds and so well put. Well, well put. that's important stuff uh and it's it's a it's a particular challenge in these circumstances because what happened during covid was that the federal government appropriately created a couple of new unemployment programs brand new specifically for the pandemic mm-hmm. so no state was prepared or had systems in place for these programs And as you know, the states are tied to the feds at the hip. So there's a lot of things that have to be made compatible. In this case, it was brand new. So the federal government basically told Vermont and every other state, look, we know that the world is exploding and that your people are hurting. So don't bother with the regular eligibility determinations that you go through, which means if you find yourself unemployed and you apply for unemployment, you have to provide documentation we check it, then we say yes or no. During the pandemic, they just said, sign up everybody, give them the money. And it was a lot of money, a great deal of money, which was great. It's exactly what people needed. So after the fact, the states were now are now obligated to try to make the adjustments necessary to true up the system. And you know, they, as uh, Emily wisely or correctly pointed out, they are always afraid of fraud which has risen to different levels than was the case 10 years ago. Now it's it's sort of uh, institutionalized. The bad guys are much better at it and have access to the internet and some other ways to make a lot of trouble for the Department of Labor. On the other hand, there's a bunch of Vermonters who just went about their business and some of whom were overwhelmed, some had COVID, were taking care of family, whatever. The documents aren't e- always easy to understand. Everybody, as Emily pointed out, was in a mess. So 
At this point, the feds are saying, go back and make it right. However, we recognize that a number of people were overpaid through no fault of their own. In many cases, the state itself might have made a mistake or two. Uh, and if we end up losing a little money in the process, we can live with that, even though it's our system that we lose the money. They're saying, generally speaking, we think this is the best way to go. It's fair and equitable. Normally, uh, which is and, not their normal system for overpayment by any means. Right, right. Uh, so the Fed said two things. One, go through your determination process. And if Olga, it is determined, was not eligible, you get to appeal to an administrative law judge who might say, I think it's I'm with Olga. And then the department has to say, OK, uncle, you know, we're not going to we're going to accept that determination. If they say, no, you weren't eligible you have another step which is available to you. The feds have told Vermont and other states, there are whole categories of people within these two new programs who could be given or, or benefit from a waiver, sort of a blanket waiver and say, look, just do it. But you gotta do it for everybody. You have to be fair about it. What's happened is DOL, because they didn't have a central system with all these people in it, they weren't ready to have that system generate the letters with the additional piece of paper that said, by the way, you know, you have the right to a waiver. It was hit or miss. It was a mess. A lot of people did now, not. I'll tell you, Doug, I had some constituents that were self-employed, got those letters, were asked to provide more verification years after the fact yeah. and got into multi-month long back and forth, terrified. Folks were terrified. And it In was. In some cases, it was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're not talking about a couple of hundred bucks, although some people it was modest. Mm -hmm. Although and people had no idea what paperwork the state was even asking for. That was also part of the thing. It was like, you know, asking for W-2s for the self-employment program, like that kind of just And there are some other tweaks to this, which are kind of fascinating and really depressing. The state DOL has the authority to take Emily's overpayment case and take it to the tax department where they can do a tax offset. So if Emily and her family were lined up to get a refund from the tax department, they'll take it. Yeah, and that's actually true in a lot of areas of government that I had not realized until fairly recently. That's an area. So it's, it's funny you know. we're talking today because I sent an email today to Craig Bolio, who's the commissioner of the tax department and said, attached is the memo we sent to DOL uh, we encourage you to consider stopping any use of the offset program unless and until DOL gets their act together on notifying people, because there are thousands of people who haven't yet been not notified. Yeah, and uh, I want to be really explicit about that, Doug, to make it clear that a, there's a number of people who may qualify for these waivers. In other words, they may qualify to not have to repay any of these overpayments. But rather than getting a letter that says that, the communication has been out of sync. And so they've been getting letters saying you're overpaid and you owe us money right. and you need to prove. They're getting letters from the tax department saying we're, we're going to take some of your refund to pay back this overpayment. But the letter that says you can apply for a waiver has either been delayed or not arrived at all. And so what should have come first is maybe not coming at all, the information that should have come first. I just want to be really explicit about that. It's very important. Yeah. When we learned that that was the case and the state said, we intend to notify these folks 
that they have the option or there's a possibility of a waiver, but we're waiting until this upgrade to our system is completed later in the year. And my head exploded and I thought, you're what? There were about 3,000 people. Actually, about 7,000 total were technically overpaid about $14 million. There are 3,000 who I think are likely eligible for some of them eligible for the waiver. And they said they had to wait till they complete this expensive IT solution uh, related to a whole bunch of things on UI, not just this. So we wrote and said, I, I had my assistant call a couple of businesses in central Vermont and say, how much would it cost for you to use your equipment to stuff to stuff 3,000 envelopes and put postage on it? And they said, oh, about $4,000. They could have done that six months ago. Now, I shouldn't have to suggest that. <laughs> so I'm very disappointed. We did get a note from them today the guy who runs the UI system, that they have notified some of these people. Uh, so there's some progress, but there's still a ways to go. And just as a quick aside, I got a phone call from a, an old friend who's an attorney with legal aid up here, and they've been representing a number of people uh, who got caught in the machine. And she, well, I think have they've come on the um, show, actually, to talk about good unemployment. Well, and, and she mentioned one of her clients, who is a new American, is a translator and helps in the school system and so forth. And when she kept getting these letters from DOL, she got scared. Mm -hmm. You know, these are folks who aren't accustomed to dealing with the government, where you can sometimes say, no, I get to appeal, don't I? Uh, they're just scared. Oh, they might take away my Section 8 or whatever the case may be. So she just paid them. When yeah. she could very well have gone the distance and said, maybe I don't have to pay. So, And I'm sure she's not alone. So it really bothered me that the department... I don't mean to say cavalier, but I, I don't think they were as careful in considering their options. And a lot of Vermonters were had paid when they may not have had mm -hmm. to and were scared and confused by a very complicated system. So it's too bad. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the chance to talk about that. Yeah, well, you know, what's what issues like this arise for me when I hear about them is and I realize I'm sensitive because I do not, Emily's brilliant. She can navigate a bureaucracy with her eyes closed and half asleep. And I like melt. And I think a lot of that's class privilege, Olga, and not like some magical superpower I have. Oh, well, <laughs> that's good to know. <laughs> Next form I have to fill out from the government, I'm bringing it to you. You know, so I, I feel for these people who got these messages because I would have gone completely out of my mind. And what it the problem is for me, from my perspective, is whenever I talk to a, like a constitutional expert or democracy expert, they remind me how much of our system operates on trust. That we how badly we need to trust government to operate well and to operate efficiently and to operate in a way that will not just screw us over because somebody feels like it that day. Mm -hmm. And when systems like this break down in this way, people lose trust. And when they lose trust, they will either start looking for a work, this is just my opinion, start looking for a workaround or not use the system at all. Mm -hmm. And it just, it leads to a big train wreck in the end. I agree. And that leads nicely into the last thing I'd like to talk about in passing, which is just the Department of, you know, you know, Dale, uh, they are responsible, among many other things. The Department of Aging and Independent Living, dear listeners. Sorry, they are responsible for the oversight of long term care facilities, including nursing homes at the high end, assisted living facilities and residential care homes. 
Nursing homes are funded with Medicare money, among other things. So they are subject to very specific requirements that the feds follow. They track what Dale does in overseeing nursing homes very carefully. The other two are not subject to federal rules, so they are only covered by the state. And there's not a lot of money at issue. There's not a lot of money subject to being lost if you don't get it right. And it's I say that it's unfortunate because what we found is that Dale is way behind. We're back to the dams thing where they're not inspecting the dams. In this case, they're not what they call surveying, but what I would call inspecting these facilities on a regular basis. And these are people's lives and these are vulnerable people. And there's, I mean, you may recall a few years ago, Seven Days did an excellent job. I think it was Seven Days mm-hmm. and spent some time looking into some of these places. And it's its a tragedy. You know, my I lost my father earlier this year. He was 99. He had a great life. But, and the people that we, our relatives and us, our partners for at some point when you get to be my age and older, that we, you know, put in these places where we expect them to meet all the requirements and the rules in law and, and they're safe and blah, blah, blah. If Dale isn't in there making sure that they are meeting those obligations, then the people of Vermont can't be assured that they're safe for their relatives and friends. It's an outrage. And, and I, I mean, think most Vermonters and really any normal person would not think to differentiate between sort of the regulatory structure and trust between a nursing home, a long-term care home, a residential facility for elders, a you know stepped-down facility, like those are all the same thing to normal people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's very disappointing for me to do this job. And, and moreover, Dale, in their response, as you know, Emily, whenever we do a gagas audit, we always offer the auditee the chance to respond, and we publish that in the report. And Dale suggested that uh, the reading of the statute for assisted living facilities was that you have to license them when they're new and the license is only good for a year. So we said, well, why aren't you inspecting them every year? If the license is done a year later, then you got to go back in. And they said, oh, no, we consider that relicensing. Well, the word relicensing and relicensure is nowhere found in statute or rule. They just made it up. They said, so we go in every two years. Of course, they don't always make it in two years. I was shocked that they, I mean, the point is, if they had gone to the attorney general or to the administration or to the legislature or all of those and said, this is what this is what we think you meant, yes. the language and the statute. Is that what you meant? They didn't do that. I mean, frankly, Doug, it's possible that they did, but they just never did it officially. If they did, they would have told me. Yeah. Believe okay. me. Yes. I was deeply offended by that. Who were you? to decide what the statute means. That's what the legislature is for. You can ask them. <laughs> mm-hmm. so a lot was, of that going around lately, Doug. Yeah, I was troubled by that, but uh, they also successfully uh, asked for and received a little extra in the way of resources, which is good, uh, but they're way behind. And mm-hmm. it's a challenging job, I get it. It's, you know, dams is one thing, but this is a whole other level. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, These are vulnerable people and, and it's our obligation as a community to take care of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, a vulnerable person's health can change very quickly when mm-hmm. when their needs aren't being met fully. <laughs> and you know, if you don't have the right facilities, they can be harmed, and they are. Mm-hmm. This is not a rare occasion when older people in these facilities get hurt. It's not rare at all. Mm-hmm. So, in in this 
this uh, these findings and these conversations with Dale, were there any uh, next steps identified or recommendations identified or ways to move forward to help mitigate the issue? We always have recommendations or almost always. And our process is that a year after the report is issued, we go back to them directly and say, have you implemented these recommendations? And we don't take their word for it. <laughs> we need documentation. And we do that every year around this time. And I report it to the legislature every January or February, depending on how busy I am in a memo to the government operations committee. So you might not see it, Emily, but uh, you know, we, we go back in routinely and then we go back again two years later. So mm -hmm. recommendation follow-up is what it's called. I mean, clearly, as with dams, they need to do this more regularly and they need right. to document. You know, we talked about very different things here, Doug. You know, the Vermont Department of Labor, the dam inspections, safety in long-term care facilities. You know, to me, when I, I'm looking at some of this work, it seems like perhaps some of our agencies are not getting the support they need to understand rules correctly, to understand legislation correctly, or maybe even just the resources to fully meet the legislation. Am I seeing that correctly or am I way off base? No, I don't think you're way off base at all. I think, you know, we are in at the end of a 40 year discussion about the role of government. Ronald Reagan said government is the problem, for goodness sake. I'm old enough that I grew up at a time coming out of the Eisenhower administration when people thought government was a force for good. And that's not the case today, sadly. Yet, if you look around, you don't have any neighbors who don't benefit one way or another from the government in all sorts of ways. You know, mm -hmm. people who complain about the budget, ask them if they like their mortgage interest deduction. You know, it just there are things that people don't ask themselves or don't appreciate uh, the context for. So, no, well, you're absolutely right. Everyone and, loves and, a good road. Yeah. <laughs> we just did a job on paving, too. That's a whole other story. Oh. AOT, yeah. Do I have to hand deliver these reports to you, Emily? <laughs> Doug, it, there's a lot happening in the email. And I do, whenever I catch one of yours, I flag it to read later, but the flags also pile up. And if it's something like roads, I'll be like that. And I have to tell you, and I've said this publicly a few times, I know roads are very important to Vermonters and very important to folks in Brattleboro. The chair of the transportation committee lives two miles away from me. And one of three representatives from Brattleboro is Molly Burke, who has been on the transportation committee since the beginning of time. I feel like if anything is well represented in my corner of the county, it is transportation. And so I pretty much let them do their thing and leave them to leave them be. Well, then I should send you the report. <laughs> <laughs> Not their fault. But yeah, no, if you want a personal phone call or text message every time you issue a new report, it would be much appreciated. <laughs> Because um, I have no staff that I can direct fair toward enough. flagging things for me. Well, in my view, that's a part of the problem. That is I indeed part of the problem. To your question, Olga, it's mm -hmm. one of many issues, but I have said publicly and, and will say again that there's a terrible imbalance in resources and power between the administration and the legislature. Mm -hmm. The legislature, thanks to Phil Hoff, now 75 years or 65 years ago, created what we take for granted now, which is Ledge Council and JFO. We but just read one of his speeches as part of our series on, yes, yep. He's a good guy. He went to my college. He's a good guy. I met him when I first came up here to look for a job. So 
But the, the problem is that the legislature, JFO is wonderful, but they only serve the money committees. Hmm. I know Emily's grateful for that, but there's other committees that would tremendously benefit from that kind of staff support that, that they don't have. Wait, before we talk, before we get here, I just want to add an extra frame. How many minutes left do we have, Oba? Uh, we have about five. So we have a legislative government accountability committee. It was not serving its purpose. And so it was sunset. That means it was dissolved, basically. And in order to rethink what it will be in the future, we have a fall study committee that's rethinking about what is the legislature's role in government accountability and what extra supports do we need for that. And I am on that committee. I am so privileged and honored to be on that committee. It's one of my favorite topics. And I know the auditor's office, I believe Tim Ash, the deputy auditor, is going to be coming in and joining us and talking through things. But I think a lot of what you're about to bring up, Doug, maybe folks want to think about in the context of like, we do actually have a process in place right now to be thinking about these issues more deeply. So back to Well, I would first say I'd like to come in myself because I've been working on this issue in government for 30 years. Great. I did the first job for the auditor's office in 1996 about government accountability. Well, then maybe you're coming in too. I am not the person inviting the people to the meeting, so I will... In any case, the the did you see the report we did on GAC? Yes, I did see that report. I read it. Yeah, I expect you did. So, I mean, the problem was that they were not using appropriate methodology. They, meaning the, the guy who works for the administration who was doing the job, which to me was curious. That individual doesn't even answer to the legislature. No. <clears throat> you guys didn't hire that person. I always thought it should be JFO's job, but everybody says that, and JFO has only so many people. But... I think we presented some very straightforward proposals and recommendations about what's wrong with the way they were doing it and the way it should be done. You know, the Joint Fiscal Office in New Mexico, which also has a fairly you know, low resource citizen legislature, has a division that's the division of performance accountability, basically. As well, they should. I mean, it seems to me that while our office performs, I think, a valuable function, you guys should be right on top of all the major agencies and departments and insist that they report regularly to you directly. And, you know, some would say, well, we do that on our annual reports. Well, I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure they use the kinds of materials that we recommend. Some of it's not accessible to lay people. You know, there's a lot of problems with the current system, and I don't see a lot of accountability on this stuff. So I'm glad you're in it, Emily. I'm glad to hear you're looking forward to it. And you know, if this week can do anything, I'd love to help. Great. Well, thank you, Doug. And I, I think what this comes back to is, you know, how can we have government operating in such a way that it it delivers its services effectively mm-hmm. uh, and, and helps meet people's needs? The start for that conversation is when Emily and her colleagues create programs or recreate programs they should be very clear, as clear as you can be about what you're hoping to achieve. Here's Yes. And I think we're actually, some of us are doing a much better job on that, but we have so many legacy pieces of the budget and legacy programs. So if we just do it for new things, we're holding new projects and programs to a much higher standard than some projects and programs that have just been spinning their wheels for a long time. So that's a good point. Well, and then sometimes it just falls apart. The first CIP program in the Agency of Commerce, which was a giveaway of $10 million to private businesses, included, thanks, I think, largely to Michael Sorotkin, included a requirement that Tom Cavett and Jeff Carr analyze the expected return on investment to these different applications. 
Imagine that. <laughs> you know, accountability on the front end. Mm-hmm. Well, when the governor insisted on another 30 or $40 million for the next phase of that program, they convinced your colleagues to get rid of that requirement, which made my head explode because it was exactly what we needed. Mm-hmm. They got rid of it, which is really too bad. And I'm not blaming you, uh, but uh, I don't know how it happened. It happened in the blink of an eye. Well, Doug, it is always a pleasure to have you on the show. Unfortunately, we're out of time. If folks want to read any of your office's reports or sign up for or your- all of the reports, the way I am apparently supposed to do, if anyone wants to read <laughs> all of the reports, how would they find them, Doug? The good yes. news, Emily, is that we now have newsletters for almost every report, and they're only two pages long. And how can people sign up for that newsletter? You have to read it to sign up for it, sadly. But if you go to our website, go to the auditor's website, and right up top it says newsletter, and you can go to that page, and they're all done. There's about 20 of them now. It's a great resource because I know- What is the auditor's website? How would someone find it? Auditor.gov. I will put links in the show notes. Yeah, right to the newsletter page is great, but also to the main page. But the the thing about uh, our reports, the Gagas reports have to meet certain requirements. They are dense, they are redundant, they are long. We live with them. It's, it's, I can't get away from it. But the newsletters uh, provide almost all the useful, necessary highlights and takeaways. And uh, I've heard from people who generally would never read our reports that the newsletters really get the gist of it and they're satisfied. Okay, thank you, Doug. Emily. And sometimes they have pictures. They do have pictures, they're very nice pictures. <laughs> Hey, Emily, if people want to find out more about you, how can they do that? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org and you'll find links to all the ways to get in touch with me. And if you're a person that thinks that websites are really fun, not like a programmer kind of person, but just like a you like cutting and pasting things and thinking about words and you want to help me with my website, I could really use a touch-up volunteer these days. So be in touch. Uh, and how, if someone's uh, interested in that, should they just email you? Just go to the website and you'll have my contact information. Fantastic. Well, and as always, the Montpelier Happy Hour is on WVEW 100, 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, every Friday at 2 and rebroadcasted Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. We also want to thank Brattleboro Community Television for sharing the video version of this broadcast with other access stations around Vermont. So thank you, BCTV. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can always email us at themontpelierhappyhour at gmail.com. Take care, everyone. Have a good weekend. Very nice talking to both of you. Thank you, as always. Bye.